I've got a Beatles podcast and it's Dave with you today with an interview and I'm uh, very excited to welcome uh, author, editor, speaker, professor, cat lover and uh, all around polymath Ken Womack to the program today. And, oh, it's uh, great to be with you. Well thanks, it's great to have you here. Uh, many of you know Ken from uh, probably seeing him at the Fest for Beatle fans, at various conferences and of course reading his uh, many, many books, and uh, just to name a few, uh, he's the author of three novels and books, uh, The Beatles Encyclopedia, uh, New Critical Perspectives on the Beatles, which I'm pleased to be a part of, uh, as well as many other uh, edited collections, and his newest two books are a collection called The Beatles, Sgt. Pepper, and the Summer of Love, which just came out. And then uh, the main focus of our podcast today, an interview, will be on Maximum Volume, The Life of Beatles producer George Martin. And this is a volume one called The Early Years, 1926 to 1966. So uh, thanks again for joining me today. Thrilled to be here. I thought it was a very fitting song to start with here since it is the summer of love. Still a few more days of the summer of love. Uh, and we started with A Day in the Life. So uh, with all my interview guests, I like to ask them to choose some songs that are meaningful to them. And so, Ken, what stands out to you about A Day in the Life? Uh, a Day in the Life to me is just the concatenation of everything that they're going to become and everything they've been working toward. And I mean all of them, you know, including George Martin, obviously, and, and certainly the bandmates. Um, and even uh, Brian Epstein. Even though, you know, it's often written that the non-touring or the studio years um, were not uh, a happy time for him, the brief period he spent in them. But uh, even for him, it was an example of uh, all the work that they'd been doing, giving them a platform where they could be true artists. And that's an amazing thing to think that, you know, six years earlier, they were going nowhere in Liverpool and had very few prospects um, outside of eventually having to get real jobs. And here they are, these working class guys, and they're about to become these great artists. And A Day in the Life, those sessions in the early part of 1967, are, are the moment when all of that comes true. 
Uh, and of course, it's also a great song to boot, but it, it symbolically, uh, there, there's a lot of unpacking one can do with this song. Definitely. And, and Martin, of course, had a big hand in that with his orchestration, the, with bringing in the, or helping with Paul and John to bring in the avant-garde influences. Uh, and I think that's something that stands out as we're going to get into when we talk about the book is how Martin seemed to be almost always in sync with uh, the Beatles themselves or always seemed to know how to translate a lot of their ideas. And uh, I'm, I'm very curious when we get into uh, uh, talking about the book, sort of you elaborating on that idea. Uh, but to begin with, just to, before we even get to today, how did you start writing about the Beatles? And uh, maybe even more importantly, how did you become a Beatle fan? Well, like you, I'm not a first-generation fan. Um, I discovered them in the very late 1970s when Beatles cartoons preempted uh, my morning TV show, and, <laughs> and I became excited by them. And, and I, I hope your laugh is laughing at the thing I do, which is it's about the lamest way to come to the Beatles, you yeah. know? It's not really the Beatles, first of all. It's, you know, it's it's not even their voices. No. Um, but, of course, it's the songs that really mattered, and... Uh, I had no idea where they'd been all my life, and um, it went from there. Uh, the first time I wrote about the Beatles, um, here's an exclusive for you, uh, <laughs> was in junior high school uh, for a very famous uh, paper called the Kingwood Cougar. The Kingwood Cougar? Yeah, I don't. You probably don't get it. No, and, I. Uh, can I? Can I? Anyway, are, they, are they online? I doubt it. Oh. <laughs> but uh, in any event, um, I had written a piece like anybody would at that time, at that age, about the Paul is dead business. Oh, how great. Uh, you know, which I thought was amazing that all these clues were hidden there. And I didn't know what garbage it was, of course, <laughs> at that point, because, you know, I'm 11 years old or whatever sure. and wouldn't know. Um, but uh, it was it was interesting nonetheless. And uh <laughs> Um, you know, that was, that was sort of in a way my first start, but, uh, like you, eventually I had a calling for administration in my academic life. And I decided that after working on 20th century British literature for as long as I had, uh, and earning tenure, um, at Penn state, it was time to do maybe something I wanted to do. And after all, and, and who would argue with me, the Beatles are 20th century British literature. Absolutely true. So that's actually an interesting point. Uh, I know a lot of, at least in music theory, there are a lot of professors who start out let's say analyzing 13th century chant or some really esoteric obscure topic and then they get tenure and suddenly they're talking about jazz or they're talking about Beyonce or something you're you being an academic and professor what what advantages and disadvantages have you found uh, with your background in writing about the Beatles well I do think one advantage a disadvantage I'll just get that out of the way quickly and I, I don't know that what I'm going to say is a popular view or even a consensus view, um, but there is a limitation I feel at times about being able to really lose myself in any kind of text, whether it's a movie, a, a great episodic television show, um, or or even a record album, because I am engaging in a certain level of analysis right. most of the time, and uh, there is a limitation. Um, Right. A little learning is a dangerous thing <laughs> to. Um, but I do think it, there is some truth to that. Right. That, that creeps up in, in the in the in workaday life. Now, having said that, um, the advantage is uh, that most areas of critical study, 
I would argue, in, in higher education, prepare you for rigorous um, debate and analysis. So um, when I'm thinking about the text of the Beatles, I can do so with a certain level of confidence when I'm thinking about the theoretical part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I look to, to folks like you in other areas, but in terms of the theory, I, I feel pretty good, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of textual theory and, and thinking critically about work. Um, and what, what it does, of course, and you know this from your own work too, one of the great beauties of having an academic background is you also learn how to be self-critical. Yes. You know, for example, I get asked very often what my most disliked Beatles song is. And uh, it's probably Mr. Moonlight. I, uh, but, I, but I also... Don't tell have, Kid O'Toole. Oh, she knows that already. You, you, no, you, you debated that. Right? Yes. In, a, in an open forum yes. that I, I, of course, won. Of course. Um, of course. Um, and we even had a guy play it live there. But, but here's the thing. So even in that moment, I could understand in a self-critical way why other people could enjoy that song. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's what I meant about being self-critical. Um, an example of, of where we, I think you probably read this too, as did most anybody who's interested in the Beatles. Uh, a fellow recently published an article rating, uh, ranking every song mm-hmm. uh, that he could find. I think he came up with like 220 entries, which yep. you can see how you'd get there. And do you remember what the last one was? Ugh, no, not offhand. That's okay. Uh, it came on last night. Um, we were driving back from seeing Coldplay here in uh, in the greater New York area, and we got caught in traffic jam. So I thought, let's listen to Revolver. Mm-hmm. I want to check out some of my arguments from, from the George Martin book that I was working on. And uh, Good Day Sunshine came on, and that is what the guy listed as oh. him. Right. And, no way. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's where I meant about having a good critical mindset. I, I don't love Good Day Sunshine, to mm-hmm. be frank, but I got to say this. I think it's easy to say that there is a consensus among people who do love it and like it very much. Um, and it's I, and I found that the guy made no argument that put it there. No, just, just um, provocative, and, trying to be provocative, maybe. Sure. And if I were making a list, uh, my own list of, say, 220 Beatles songs, I bet you it's in the top 50 or so. Oh, yeah. Simply yeah. because it is that good. It has incredible elements such as George's wind up piano solo, mm-hmm. other pieces. Um, uh, it's a it's a well-crafted song. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, what we do learn, the advantage, I think, is being able to make arguments. And that's that's important because I think at least in when I talk about popular music with my students, they'll they'll say, oh, no, you've ruined it now. Now I can't listen to it like you were saying earlier. Now I can't listen to a song without analyzing it or without thinking about the lyrics. And I said, what's wrong with that? That's actually a a good thing uh, in a lot of ways. And and one of my own gripes about uh, Beatles scholarship is the fact that a lot of it has been unsourced and un verifiable and so you end up getting these myths and stories that that have been passed along through the generations so uh what books and authors influenced you as you in the beetle world uh as you became a beatles writer i I mean in many ways it's it's our friend mark lewison sure Uh, i'm not doing this without him the foundation work that he's done and will do um will in fact invalidate some of what I'm writing right now mm-hmm. um, because he will find because he has the ability to um, and, and the means and uh, the contacts he will find some things uh, that you know question 
uh, some of my and our conclusions over the next several years, particularly about that next period that he's about to write about. And mm-hmm. I, you know, uh, I met him recently uh, when I was over in the UK, and I, you know, I told him he's courageous to do this, to give his life to this story because. Um, a lot of what he's doing, of course, is, as you said, he is exploding many, many myths. And I imagine that there will be many more for the next two volumes, uh, many more than even the first volume that right. are exposed. Um, and, and, and that people like you and me, unfortunately, <laughs> well, no, it's just the truth, right? Yeah, yeah it's scholarship. Yeah. Have on occasion repeated and, you know, yeah. we'll, we'll yeah. deal with it well. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll be okay with it. But, sure. uh, so, so certainly he's very influential. Now, he would himself tell you that he's already found moments in his previous work, some works more than others, where, you know, he sees his own errors, his own iteration. Those myths run really deep. Yes, yes. Uh, and, uh, and sometimes they fit our narrative so well that we go down those primrose paths pretty easily. So in terms of the scholarship, it's certainly him. Uh, I don't pretend that I can ever work at his level. I think that we can only aspire to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in terms of stylist, stylistics, um, yeah. I, I like Tim Riley a lot. And, of course, uh, as you know, you know Tim. And, yeah, we just met him. Uh, author of what, what, Tell Me Why, uh, the Beatles commentary, or uh, the late uh, Ian MacDonald. Yes. Um, both great stylists. And I think they were just as important to, as Mark was uh, in creating the thing it is that we do now. Sort of serious scholarship on the Beatles instead of just fan books or uh, just kind of just telling the story re- rehashing the story uh, but actually applying critical thinking to it and looking at sources and and interpreting what what you find yeah yeah and that that certainly happens a lot in the George Martin book so i want to turn to that now uh, it's amazing in a way i guess it's it's tough when you have living people but the fact that there's really until now we haven't had any serious book on George Martin uh, is kind of amazing to me. So how did you get into or decide to start writing about George Martin? And uh, why do you think there are so few books on him? Um, I think part of the reason is, uh, particularly during his living years, we accepted um, his works as um, sort of the last word. Yeah. All you need is ears and his, his pepper book. And then his, um, sort of limited edition playback, we sort of accepted those as, um, I guess, the last word uh, on the subject. And, uh, (laughs) you know. (laughs) How wrong um, we were. Well, I think how wrong we were. um, And there are a lot of reasons why he might not have been interested in providing any kind of exhaustive commentary about his own life. We could speculate on that. I'm sure we'd be wrong to a certain extent, Mm -hmm. um, but correct in other ways. So uh, I noticed that lack uh, in terms of having a book on him. I didn't expect it was going to be two. Yeah. Uh, Quite frankly, we could talk about that more if you want, but that was not my plan. Um, But then um, in addition to that part of this, I was also interested in, in him having perhaps the most privileged place in all of uh, the Western world to be the guy who was about or almost the first person they would debut these amazing songs to. And what a privileged position that was to be there when they said, we've got this new piece. It's I'm the walrus or, you know, (laughs) yesterday or 
Strawberry um, fields Norwegian or whatever. Wood. Yeah. First time you heard Norwegian wood when he was, what, on the ski slopes. Yeah. Um, or convalescing and not getting on the ski slopes because of his silliness in, a, in the ski lodge. <laughs> but um, all of those things, uh, that to me was what makes his story exciting to be that guy. You know, that we always joke about how Ringo is the luckiest guy in the world. Um, it's probably George, right? Yeah. I mean, in many ways, it shouldn't have happened. I mean, George Martin, I think George Martin and the Beatles are like the Titanic. Hmm. You know, they had this incredibly unlikely collision of talent and wherewithal. Um, but it should not have happened. You no. know, these guys from that place should not have become who they are. He was certainly not lined up for that kind of outcome. And I, I, I like the, the Titanic analogy because, of course, um, they had every every bit of wherewithal for, for that sinking not to have occurred. Right. Absolutely. And so uh, we you know, Beatle fans know the George Martin story from 1962. Well, let's, let's you know, June 6, 1962, when the Beatles uh, came in to record or even before that, sort of the whole story, thanks to Mark Lewison, who cleaned up some of the details about why the Beatles were signed and uh, George Martin's uh, views at that time. Uh, but a lot of people don't know the early years of where this guy came from. Maybe they'd heard, oh, he was a classical musician, and he was very upper crust and very aristocratic and uh, you know all this and that. But I think something that really surprised me and I think we'll surprise our, our listeners who read the book, uh, is that George Martin was not, the, the one that we know and love, the Sir George, did not start that way. So can you talk a little bit about his upbringing and uh, things that really stood out to you uh, before he even became a producer about how his own social, uh, I want to say climbing maybe, or mobility? Well, and he didn't have any, right? Um, mm -hmm. He should not have had any social mobility. He was – to call him working class is generous because for, for a good bit of his life, his father was unemployed. He was a Depression-era child. George was. Um, they grew up in North London. Uh, I think he was arguably poorer than even the Starkey family. Hmm. Uh, um, I, I think that's a pretty safe bet actually. Um, they – in a time when people did have running water and electricity, they had neither in their first home. They had one gas jet. So uh, they they were very limited means. Um, and that that's the world George grew up in. Um, and and not it's not for nothing that he would spend a good bit of his life, probably the most of his life, turning his back on that world. Now, um, I don't want to give the impression that he wasn't honest about where he came from. Folks that he really knew knew his story. He wasn't masquerading <laughs> some romantic novel, you know, where he was hiding out. But he grew up with very humble origins. And um, his life, uh, in addition to the fact that he and the Beatles would collide later and create a certain kind of magic, his life. Uh, was touched rather magically by a guy named Sidney Harrison, mm -hmm. who was an accomplished pianist with the BBC and also a professor at the Guildhall School. And he saw something in George and opened up doors for him two or three times, and it made all the difference. It was what we call in literary studies fortunate sponsorship. Oh, I like that term. Yes. Very fitting. And what, what surprised you, maybe one or two, 
uh, facts or uh, circumstances that really surprised you most about his early upbringing apart from what you just mentioned? He was honest, very honest in his book Playback about his origins, um, but not in any detailed way. And talking to his older son, Gregory, um, I learned about um, his mother's, uh, Gregory's mother, Sheena, who was George's first wife, just memories of visiting the Martin family um, at uh, at their place in Bromley and um, just how downtrodden it was. His mother would take in orphans to try to make ends meet, and it was a pretty brutal way to live. And, of course, when you start to think about that, here he is, a young man going off to war. That really wasn't the world he wanted to go back to either. So mm -hmm. I'm not saying that when he was refashioning his voice while hanging out with the more upper crust officers in officers training, that that was foremost on his mind. But at some level, um, having gone off and seen a good bit of the world and having seen a better life with these um, more aristocratic officers who were probably destined to be officers from birth – had to have changed his worldview. You know, in a lot of ways, it's like what happens with first-generation college students, right? Sure. Um, especially when they really go away for a year to school and then come back in the spring or maybe only come back for the, uh, the winter holidays. They're often, um, in some cultures and households, real difficulty that occurs at that point. I think George must have gone through some of that. Can't go home again. No, you can't. I mean, it's a cliche for a reason. Yeah, yeah very true. <laughs> Now, as a classical musician uh, myself, I'm taken by the epigraph you put at the beginning of or, you know, what the epigraph is at the beginning of the book. Uh, but you have a quote from Claude Debussy, who was a composer that comes back here and there uh, throughout the book and in George Martin's early years. Uh, but you, you have a quote here from Debussy that says, music should humbly seek to please within these limits. Great beauty may perhaps be found. Why did you choose that particular quote, and can you talk about uh, his development a bit as a classical musician and how that uh, impacted or kind of pushed him forward? Well, the first time he noticed music in, in an aesthetic sense was when he was at the Bromley School um, as a, a young teen, and uh, Sir Adrian Brolt and the orchestra came down from London, and George was very mesmerized by what he heard. He couldn't believe that human beings could make these sounds. And it was a, you know, it was a, call it what you will, a moment of epiphany, a cataleptic experience, an mm -hmm. out-of-body experience, whatever those things are, he had one. <laughs> and, uh, it, you know, it, it lasted with him for the rest of his life. The girl with the flaxen hair yeah. has been way up there in terms of, of his own museum of personal recollections and favorite songs. Um, but the idea that music should please and it should do so humbly, as you hear in that quotation, really sounded very George to me. Mm -hmm. um, the idea that, um, you know, we don't have to listen to music no. <laughs> uh, and, and, in a, and in a consumeristic way, we don't have to choose your music. Right. Right. Um, we make uh, choices and fickle ones based upon a whole host of factors seen and unseen, recognized and unrecognized. And George. George knew this, and uh, I, I, I just hear so much of his work 
that comes from that. And a point that I come back to a lot with students and audiences at my talks is the issue of what makes George so special for them. And to me, it always comes back to the care he put into those recordings. To make sure that those recordings please, that when you listen to them, that if you're going to hear hard textures, it's because the Beatles are playing them on Helter Skelter, not because the recording was made in some shoddy fashion, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so consequently, anyone can test this theory out. Consequently, when you listen to music, say, from the mid-60s, um, two bands I love, The Who and The Kinks, and then go listen to Revolver. Uh, they're not even in the same hemisphere of quality of production. Right, right. They're just not there. And The Stones, too, to a certain extent, right? Um, they just simply did not have his care. And of course, that's why he blanches so much later when the Let It Be album comes out and it doesn't have um, that that qualitative sheen that was so important to him in, in presenting and curating the Beatles. So it's almost a sense of serving the music uh, and caring for the music so that it's 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 well produced, well played. All Every detail is taken care of and intentional. Yes. And uh, and for George, um, there are legitimately times where he cares more about the music than they do. Uh, You might recall there was a quotation that I borrowed from uh, his book, All You Need Is Ears, where he says he would at times make tactical withdrawals. So um, and that's going to come up far more in volume two, where he had to skirt situations very lightly um, so as not to be seen as pushing an agenda one way or the other or any way encroaching upon their creative um, authority, making the production. But he would have been damned, right, <laughs> if he was going oh, to let something um, come through that, that wasn't appropriate. Yeah. Uh, he was willing to register his feelings about that. Um, the Yesterday and Today album cover that we talk about, uh, the Butcher cover, right? right? right. George right. thought that was a terrible move, uh, cert- <laughs> uh, and he could see why it was a bad choice. Didn't Brian Epstein also not like it either? Right, but I don't think Brian expected it to be on the cover. No, the no. Cover. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that probably hurt. Um, yeah. But it really stuck in Brian's craw. Um, you, you probably know the great scene where Klaus Vorman is um, – debuting his beautiful cover for revolver and brian quite literally wept yes he's so happy to see that it wasn't going to be yesterday (laughs) and today that it was going to be something you could show your mother you know (laughs) right it's it's uh quite a path that he took to get to that point because uh as most people who know anything about george martin know that they know that he cut his teeth on a lot of comedy records and comedy work so can you talk a little bit about the importance of that work on his what he would do a few years later with the Beatles. So maybe Peter Sellers or uh, Ustinov, things like that. Well, it, it has a double uh, kind of value to it. One, it saved his bacon. Uh, he mm, would financially. Out, yeah, his his wonderful job uh, as A and R head. If he had not come up with something that would have been, created a going concern, which is what the comedy did uh, for all the families of the Parlophone employees, right? So. Um, in terms of his own story, it's pretty heroic that he's able to pull that off and mm-hmm. find a niche because it wasn't happening in his other areas. And as wonderful as uh, Oscar Preuss was in creating Parlophone and sort of shepherding it through its life, um, George had to take it somewhere else if it were going to survive. And comedy and spoken word was that place. 
why is it valued of Beatles? Well, one thing, it, it keeps George in the business, but two, um, it allows him to create or learn how to create what he would call sound pictures, mm-hmm. which is going to be the name of volume two. Oh, good. And sound pictures are these images in our minds, right? Um, because he understood that music has a narrative or literary sense or imagistic may be the better way to put it, where it does paint pictures in our minds. So how can he exploit that? Uh, and comedy really taught him how to do that. You know, he had uh, uh, one famous piece um, where uh, a comedy skit is being played off, played out rather on a on a on a hillside. You know, um, to do that with only audio is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so he learned how to understand this. And, and I was listening to yellow submarine last night. Of course, it was on the same album as you well know, right, right. uh, as good day sunshine. And, um, think about it. That thing sounds like a damn engine room, doesn't it? <laughs> it's very authentic. It yeah. really does. It's yeah. quite fabulous in how well that's pulled off. Mm-hmm. Now, some of that of course is, uh, you know, John screwing around and blowing bubbles be, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And doing all that fun stuff. But, um, you know, Jeff Emmerich and George Martin spent the better part of the entire day that day um, going through the, the, the sound effects records, mm-hmm. you know, building that. So when you hear it, and of course it did have a certain target audience of children, it feels like you're in that cool submarine. It's a sound picture again. Yeah, it yeah. is. Yeah. And so uh, the comedy records really helped that happen. He learns how to slow things down, speed them up. Um, he learned some valuable editing. He learned how to create multiple voices from the same singer or speaker on a track. Just enormous uh, issues like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, because he was looking, and then eventually he would make the pivot to try to get a, a pop group or try to get a hit somehow. And this was really fascinating to me, but just try, his kind of ups and downs with some of the pre-Beatle artists that he was working with. And uh, you, I listened to, you mentioned, I think it was a, the South, Southlanders or something. Yes. Yes. Uh, it was, the whole, all these albums of American covers, uh, like Earth Angel and tunes that had already been done by doo-wop artists. And uh, that, so what was British music like before the Beatles, those, for those few years right before? And what was George's role in that? Well, if you recall, the Beatles themselves would talk about the limited nature of of the soundscapes of British radio. Of course, outside of the pirates, it was controlled by the, the government. Mm-hmm. Um, and the charts in England were um, a kind of wacky collection of different styles and genres. Um, uh, Mark, Mark Lewison uh, grew up in some of the – one part of that period, uh, probably – I guess in the uh, '60s mostly, but um, but he was very familiar. He's told me with with the kind of music of that time, and he found it to be exciting hmm. and uh, just a myriad of, of of competing styles and genres. Um, and I've been perfectly frank with him. I don't feel that when I hear it. No, um, no, not even like Cliff Beatles, Richard or something like that. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And the Beatles uh, didn't feel it either. They liked the comedy, as we know, mm-hmm. uh, not all of it, but they liked like some of it. They liked good British gags. And uh, but but, you know, 
they saw the limitations in what Cliff was doing. They saw the limitations in British, British pop and British, British beat music. They listened to Americans, you know, and uh, I'm sure you recall Paul McCartney in the anthology saying when we, when we went to the U.S., we weren't listening to ourselves. We were playing, you know, American R&B. That's They'd, right. Yeah, getting all the records, was, Chuck Berry and all that stuff. Yeah. Right, and then they started listening to Dylan almost mm-hmm. nonstop for about a year or two. Um, and that went on for quite some time and then briefly flirted with a little bit of Beach Boys. But, you know, I, I, I think the Beatles were cognizant of that kind of weird proliferation that George was a part of, Martin. Um, but it was a it was a strange kind of admixture, that world of all these different styles. And even what George was doing, you might recall that when he first started, he would get in these mobile recording trucks for for emi for parlophone drive up to scotland yeah and they cut records on the spot (laughs) and then they would come back and see if any of them were any good and they would just essentially throw them all at the charts and see what stuck i love that that's that just like just just throw it and see what happens here maybe this maybe we'll get a hit yeah but you know george didn't have a lot of illusions about it um I, i don't think he recorded the vipers thinking wow this is fantastic Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> no. um, I mean, some of it was work for hire. Yeah, okay. all of this makes uh, what happens with the Beatles eminently more special to him because he's been through the war for 12 years before he meets them. And to be able to work with someone and mold them of that caliber was a completely different experience. Right. And that, yeah, I was going to say being through the war and knowing all the tricks of the trade, thinking of how do you do it, for example, is that he was right. That was going to be a hit. And he knew a good song and just took the right people to do it. And the Beatles weren't the right people. even though He they... did, but, you know, he didn't learn from that moment. No. And <laughs> I'm, I'm having trouble thinking about this right now where I'm, I'm going back and working on something in volume two, which I'm close to completing. And, uh, you know, when, when he goes to the U.S. after he starts his own company, he has this moment where he goes over where he should be looking for talent, right? He should be trying to find the next band that yeah. writes their songs. And instead, he does things like go to the Brill Building Oh no! <laughs> to look for songs. It's right out of 1962. Yeah, the song and I, pluggers and everything. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Isn't that uh, – wow. it's fast. But I guess we're all like that, right? We are creatures of habit. True, true. But we, you and I hadn't discovered the Beatles. <laughs> no, so exactly. I know. That's where I, I know. hold him to a higher standard. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that leads us very well into the meeting of, well, the, the first meeting of George Martin and Brian Epstein back in February of 1962. Uh, we all know that, as I mentioned, the story of when they the Beatles came to record in June of that year. Uh, but some people may not know much about the fact that they met that George Martin and Brian Epstein had met earlier. So what was that meeting all about in February? It turns out what Brian was doing was speaking the truth. When he came there, um, he was grasping at straws. EMI had already rejected him, uh, twice, I believe. Hmm. And, uh, so here he is trying to win a contract for the band. He's desperate because of course they had been, uh, rejected by Decca. Yep back at the beginning of the year. So, you know, he's desperate and, but yet he's staying with his talking points, which again, they turn out to be true <laughs> when he says they will be bigger than Elvis. Um, that's a true talking point. Yes. But of course, sitting there in that office in February, 1962, uh, George can't take that seriously. 
Um, he can't get over the fact that they're from Liverpool. My armchair psychology, which may be wrong, would suggest that why would he want to take a chance on a, a band uh, from from those origins when he spent his life social climbing in a different direction? Um, so Brian, to a certain extent, played it badly. Before he even hears mm-hmm. the Beatles, he's thinking, Elvis, really? Liverpool? And then he hears the demos and he's he says i'm not knocked out <laughs> yeah yeah um which is an interesting double negative uh <laughs> i guess it's sort of early 60s feet speak for not far out or mm-hmm. <laughs> um or something i don't know but or atrocious but george um had had some recent experiences that were weighing heavily on him and i think that's why he did say if you want to bring them down for a bash we'll listen to him in the studio what always what does not make sense to me, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts, is why didn't Brian just do that? You mean bring him down at that time? Yeah, I mean, he, yeah. he said if you want to bring him here. I don't know. Uh, well, and maybe uh, I'm speaking about this with my 21st century brain, right? Yeah, right, right. So my brain says in the 21st century, okay, well, if you're saying I can come down, I'm going to— Let's gonna, do it. Yeah, yeah damn it. Uh, let's go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, you can reject know. this person. That'll be fun. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> yeah, it's not um, like it, the Beatles had a lot of other opportunities at that time that they were just they could just be selective and turned down. I mean, they would have jumped at anything. I mean, even Mark leaves some space on this. It may be just one of those things we're never really going to understand. Yeah. Um, but it would seem that there was a big space, you know, to do something there. But it took until June to actually make something happen. At that point, uh, the, the, everyone loves the famous quip about George Harrison after, after you, you set it up so well in the book that you're, you're talking about how George Martin is sort of uh, fatherly schooling them about how the studio works and all the, you know, sort of, no, no, boys, this is how it works. This is what you do. And then he says, is there anything you don't like? And then that's when George Harrison makes his funny quip about not liking George Martin's tie. Uh, right. Is that as pivotal a moment as uh, we often think it is? I don't know. Uh, I It feels pivotal to me because it feels pivotal to me because of the, the previous meeting and how poorly that was set up. Yeah. And also knowing what we know now because of Mark's great work about the circumstances, the convolution of circumstances that bring this thing to happen, right? Um, because of that, I, 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 I like to believe, and again, it's purely biographical speculation, that it was useful that um, they showed that side of their personality to him because in his head, you know, um, he knows he only has to record a few sides yeah. which are records with them and he's done with them. And he's done this many times in his 12 year career at this point where he's just basically played out the string. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, so <laughs> yeah. if that's the case, he can do that. Yeah, that's easy. Well, it's it's it, it is a good moment because it it does break the ice a little bit or diffuses the the fact they didn't know each other and there was this age difference and all this stuff. And it was also the Beatles had to have been nervous. It was their first real big time studio experience, and 
Uh, well, in a way, though, let's let's be fair. It's kind of the second, right? Guess, because yeah. But 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 you're right in the sense that they had to be nervous because the first one where they got the thumbs up from the guy as they left felt decent. So mm-hmm. this this is you know you know what it's like. You're going into territory where you feel like, hey, wait a minute. Yeah. Why am I subjecting myself to this again? <laughs> I know the rejection. <laughs> how many ah. times do I want to? How many times do I want to be rejected? Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and that, so it was. It was just kind of a, in a way, new territory. And so uh, we'll we'll play a song in a second. But I want to talk about this difference a little between the live Beatles and the studio Beatles uh, as they were learning their craft and. Uh, do you think George Martin was more impressed by their live show, or because I know he was Brian took him to the cavern a few times, or at least at least a couple times? Well, uh, they went once in December. Okay, um, that was a problem writing the biography because George alludes to a much earlier visit. Yeah, that did not happen. <laughs> oh, really? Okay, I was speaking yeah, of myths it happened, here. It yeah. did not happen until December, um, uh-huh. and. Uh, and there are a number of places like this in George's biography. Um, again, he wrote this book and it came out in 1979. That's another era for rock biography, mm-hmm. you know, where where we took it less serious than we do now. Um, I mean, think about it. That's around the time the Buddy Holly story came out. And that thing is filled with um, oh, biographical alterations and outright factual problems um, but it was, you know, 1978 and we didn't care. No, <laughs> we, we, we felt like it was okay to bend story to meet your needs mm-hmm. back in those days. So, um, you know, he did have respect for their live act. He had heard enough to know by then because he, he had his ear to the ground that they were considered a, a great live band and, and it did help them, him to see them when he went up there. I guess it was in December of 1962. Okay. Well, then several years later, uh, now we're going to jump quite a bit later into the White Album here. Uh, we come up with a song that is very much a studio creation with uh, lots of uh, intricacies and different parts to it. So uh, Ken has chosen Happiness is a Warm Gun. And so we're going to play a little bit of it and then uh, come back and talk about it in reference to the Beatles in the studio. And sort of thinking back, this was 68, so... Uh, six years earlier, kind of how much they had developed and what George, how George's hand may have played a role in there. So let's take a listen to a bit of Happiness is a Warm Gun. She's not a girl who misses much Oh yeah Acquainted with the touch of the velvet hand Like a lizard on a windowpane The man in the crowd with the multicolored mirrors On his hobnail boots Lying with his eyes while his hands are busy Working overtime A soap impression of his wife Which he ate and donated to the National Trust I'm going down, down to the bits that I left up town. I 
need a fix cause I'm gone down Mother Superior jumped the gun Mother Superior jumped the gun Mother Superior jumped the gun Ah, such a great song, Happiness is a Warm Gun. So what what strikes you about that and thinking about the Beatles' development in the studio under George? Well, it, it to me, it um, it's a very important late Beatles song. Um, and it also just demonstrates so provocatively and um, forcefully how... Um, how they had emerged as artists by that point. It's really something to behold in those terms. Uh, just the level that they had now reached. Um, I mean, it's a, it's, you know, what folks like you and, 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 and your part of our discipline describe as a through composed song. Mm-hmm. Beatles didn't wake up one day and say, we're going to write a through composed song. That is the result of, um, you know, the grassroots result of their creative artistry. It's um, really quite fantastic with the, the three or five sections, depending on how you how you call it. Right. Um, of course, George, the only hand he really had in that song, Martin, was uh, showing John the gun magazine that said happiness is a warm gun. <laughs> and, and of course, they both were aghast at the idea that, you know, that's a terrible thing to say. It's, yeah. you know, <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, you know, that that that. Uh, affected them and it, it demonstrates the way in which musical inspiration occurs and songwriting takes place um, but it's it's a powerful track you know and of course they would do a similar thing with you never give me your money on on Abbey Road which is also a three composed song right and I, I can't help but think that they picked up some of the and even though they I still I'm on record as saying I don't believe Paul McCartney when he says he doesn't know how to read music. I I just can't imagine that even now. I think it's just a, it goes back to that. Well, you know, I want to keep the innocence and I don't want to know too much. And but I just I don't believe it. But I I can't believe that the Beatles didn't pick up some of these formal ideas or uh, things that uh, kind of formalized music from George uh, at some point along the way. Well, we mentioned, uh, or I did Good Day Sunshine earlier, yeah, and yeah. it has some pretty cos- complex yep. uh, time signature stuff going yes, on, right? Meter, metrical uh, stuff, yeah. And certainly the same would be said for uh, A Day in the Life and Happiness is a Warm Gun. Those songs, there, there is definitely a lot going on. And uh, our friend Walter Everett calls it progressive tonality, right? Right, right. The way they gain more and more musical knowledge and access to different key and time signatures. Uh, that's a real thing. And uh, Martin certainly had to have helped them translate some of that. But this is where we don't want to err too far on the side of giving him too much credit. Yeah. Because there is something that had to be uh, in Paul McCartney when he was writing Good Day Sunshine that was being drawn out by that process. True. And so how did George Martin view himself or see his role as producer, uh, let's say, in the early days? Uh, you, you make a point in the book that there, is a, there wasn't really such a thing as a record producer. You weren't called that. And George Martin, in a way, invented that term or it, it became attributed to him somehow. Uh, but how did he see his, his role as producer on, let's say, Love Me Do and Please Please Me and all the early albums that was very different from Happiness is a Warm Gun or the later tunes? Well, in the early years, 
he's their translator, their guide. He's their supervisor uh, in many ways. Um, they probably looked at him a little like a father figure to a certain extent. Uh, he's certainly an older brother kind of person. Um, he has that accent, uh, which is very halting if you're uh, in, in different from a different class or think you're from a different class. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, he had a lot of power. Uh, he was the guy who could make or break them and uh, obviously made them. So um, they deferred to him pretty deeply and, and observers in the studio, even in 1966, would note uh, how much they deferred to him and uh and his place in their work and in their story so uh, but that changes again he makes technical tactical decisions to withdraw at times to maybe not offer commentary um there are moments even in the later years where he does get a bit flummoxed such as uh um you know the studio sessions when they were doing it's all too much he thought they were getting a little out of hand in that post pepper moment oh. uh, and told them so um <laughs> You know, when he leaves for a time during the White Album and goes on vacation and leaves Chris Thomas in his place, that's a deep tactical decision. You know, oh. uh, uh, it, it, that was a choice. It wasn't because and, and he had gotten in on some of the shouting, I believe, that July. But it was a tactical choice to spend part of uh, August not there on site um, to put them at a certain kind of distance. Mm hmm. Uh, and he played it pretty carefully and deftly during the the get back sessions too. So um, he was a very smart political player, and I think we're we'd always be remiss not to remember that during this period, starting in the fall of 1965, he's trying to get his own company, Associated Independent Recordings Air, off the ground, and they really have one major client, and we've been talking about them a lot, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and. Uh, and, you know, they're the rainmaker and he gets a pretty crummy residual off of them. But because they make so much rain, it's a lot of money. Right. Yes. So it's a lot, a lot of money. And uh, and that that keeps the business going forward. But that means they've got to build in um, a, a lot of new clientele to make things go. So the Beatles, he could not afford to lose them. And so he kept a very smart, careful eye on them to make sure that another producer wouldn't show up as they were thinking of and flirting with briefly with Steve Cropper or Jim Stewart, those guys at Stax uh, in 1966. He had to make sure that he took care of business. And uh, that's why when he leaves for those couple of weeks then in 1968, he leaves Chris Thomas, his protege and a guy he can keep tabs on in huh. charge. So he was, it, it was smart politically, but also a little bit of a heavy hand or a little controlling to some extent for his own self-preservation or self-interest. Right. But, and it was, it's always important to look at who he communicates what and to whom. Mm-hmm. To whom he communicates and what he communicates. Wow. That is, that's very interesting. And I would also recommend anyone uh, who's interested in you, what you mentioned about him leaving EMI uh, that's detailed really well in the book and, and fills in a lot of holes that I hadn't known either about the, just how stupid they were on the negotiation. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's no other way to look at that. No. Uh, 
it's it's hard headed, stubborn ridiculousness. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like not signing your home run king and you have the means to do it. Right. Is literally what happened there. Exactly. Uh, Oh. He made he he had a case that he should never have had to make. No, about having thirty seven of the top of fifth the top record of fifty two weeks in sixty three of not having you know by by sixty six his titles have sold worldwide two hundred million copies. Oh my gosh, <laughs> let's get and rid of him. Not worth it. Sixty six, not even a full calendar year since he made his break with Air. And uh, there is a moment in 69 where they try to bring him back to EMI and they offer him. And this is, again, stupidity. They offer him the same salary they offered him when he left in 65. Unbelievable. Wow. 10,000 pounds. Yeah, I think he made the right decision to. Well, he did. But, you know, but of course, when a person makes that decision, they also make it with resentment and anger. Yes, bitterness and you know, that's not good for your brand. No, no. Whoever you are, and if your brand is EMI and Parlophone, I can't see how you want that. But yeah, it did happen. Yeah. It's happening now somewhere, some someplace. Oh, yeah. Well, you, you, uh, apart from all the Beatle information, which is interesting, you also spend quite a bit of time talking about uh, other acts that George Martin came across or even produced. And I remember right after he died, on Spotify, they had a. They always have these lists. I think it was called "This Is George Martin," and I was very surprised to see some of the acts that he had produced. And so we'll limit it to uh, pre-1966 groups here. But uh, I'm just looking at things here. We have Silla Black and Billy J. Kramer, who were very much associated with Brian Epstein. Uh, we have uh, Ella Fitzgerald, uh, Judy Garland like a lot of pretty well-known people. So can you talk about how George, how you think he approached some of these other acts and it, was it very different than uh, producing the Beatles? Do you think? I think it was. And, uh, you know, the Beatles are so, they're a seismic event, right? I mean, they, they're not rote or the norm. They're the anomaly. And, uh, that affected George just as it affected everybody they worked with and their place in history and all of those lofty things. I, I don't. I, I feel at times he couldn't bring as much of himself to those other projects because he's always got to maintain space for them. And starting in 65, 66, they're taking up more and more time. Um, so consequently, you don't see that many major acts coming out. In fact, many of them are having cover version hits like David and Jonathan – uh, with Beatles songs, right? Hmm. Uh, and in the early years, Brian's stable of artists are producing Beatles songs. So they're, they're doing cover versions of Lennon McCartney compositions. And all the throwaways that Billy yeah. J. Kramer did. And, yeah. So uh, this, this won't be the most popular thing to say, but I really believe it. You know, the Beatles are the sum of their parts. One of those parts is George Martin. Yeah. Um, and after... They sail into the sunset with Abbey Road. Not one of those people ever reaches those heights again. They reach versions of them, perhaps, um, each in their own way, but never the same kind of heady, full-blown artistic experience. And that's true for George, too. Even with – well, I don't want to get into the next book, but even with – he did go on to have some other big-name 
people like Jeff Beck and America and things like that. Oh, absolutely. And he has number one songs. Yeah. He had, I mean, a great album with Jeff Beck, um, the Princess Diana Candle in the Wind oh, right, right. production, you know, which is very important. He, uh, you mentioned America. Now he, he's sort of on the tail end of their career, but he did go in and produce the, the greatest hits album before songs like Tin Man uh, and, uh, and, and what Sister Golden Hair and yeah. those pieces. He did do. Um, I mean, there's no question uh, that he does some some enormous moments at times, but nothing is going to be sustained like the Beatles. Oh no! Oh no! But again, where it's where we started. They're an anomaly, and uh, I think that does affect him. Now, you mentioned Judy Garland and um, Ella Fitzgerald. I mean, yeah. they're both late career people, and you can imagine how their their team would want to get their shot too, right? You know, they both took a chance. Judy was dead not long afterwards, and uh, Ella was really a, b- a bit past her prime too. Although I, I like her version of "Can't Buy Me Love." I listened to that this morning. It was pretty great. I, I, yeah. I did like it. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but you know, again, you can see the motivity behind why their people would try to associate them, with George. It happened several times where. Acts will try to align themselves. This will happen well into the 80s. Uh, heck, maybe one of those acts is Paul McCartney, although they have some really great success, mm-hmm. uh, of course, at that time, too. But they're the sum of their parts. Yeah, that's, I think that's really well said, and I would completely agree. Uh, it, it, as much as they did have hits afterwards, and Paul McCartney is the gr- most successful songwriter in history, blah, 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 it, there was just something special about that particular time and the players in that in that whole team this is also again i don't want to give too much away here uh but you you tell some that george is not always the nicest guy in the world or uh, he's not perfect by any means and so there's some good discussion about uh, he's got some marital drama can you tell us a little bit about uh now we all know giles martin but that was not uh, giles martin was not from his first wife correct right and giles will be in volume two because he wasn't born yet (laughs) Mm mm-hmm um, and so, so we'll see him and his sister Lucy later. Um, yeah, George had a first marriage and you, you know, you're right about what you said about how he does, he has some parts that are not so nice, but we all do. Yeah. Um, that's being human. And, uh, George had his own regrets about things that happened and how they transpired. Um, the way real life interrupts us. Um, the choices you have to make. I'm sure he made many choices on behalf of being with the Beatles um, he did have his first wife, Sheena. Uh, they were married in, I guess, uh, 48, 1948, um, and divorced in uh, the mid-60s. Um, and that's when George married his uh, his assistant, his executive assistant, um, Judy Lockhart-Smith. Um, they had had a long-term affair at this point. And, and she uh, worked at Abbey Road, correct? Well, yeah, she's the yeah. first person he meets at Abbey Road when yeah. he, he comes in on that day, I guess, in September 1950 in his his old fleet air arm great coat. And there she is. <laughs> and, uh, but she has her own hand, uh, in the story of the Beatles, you know, their friendship, which later became romantic was a, I know a great source of power for George. She would talk him through some of the tough times they had in, in the late fifties and certainly getting over 
the various hurdles he had to to accept the Beatles and go forth. We know she had a hand in that. Uh, in fact, his oldest son by his previous marriage has noted that to me, that Judy was absolutely instrumental in helping George get over himself a little bit. Because when you look at um, his lack of ability to find success at some points, it was often because he was looking for it. And this is going to put a song in your head from Urban Cowboy and apologize, but in all the wrong places, <laughs> you know, he really was. I mean, he almost was looking for the success and not the great artist, Yeah, you know, which was probably another initial turnoff with the Beatles. And she helped him get over some of those things um, and was more equipped, at least at that point in his life, to be that partner. I wish she had written some sort of document or book or. Well, she still could. She's still, um, she's still yeah. She's still with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I think it would be wonderful if she would. In fact, um, you know, I I don't know if there'll be any book that ever has any true authority about George unless. I mean, again, it's written by a spouse if she were to do it, yeah. but it would be the book that has a certain level. She can certainly, t- I was going to say a certain level of authority, which is true, but she can also take us into places we have never been right. and have no other reason to get there. Hmm. Um, because what we don't know uh, are George's own, you know, w- what did George think when they did Obla de Obla da 110 times? Exactly. She will know because he came home and said, oh, my God, you know, awful. I love this song, but yeah, uh, or this person did this or here's what happened. I would imagine she's the person who knows those things. I Mark Lewison said something to me once that really sticks with me about George. And that is when you look at the amount of work he did really for well into the 80s, he must have been always busy. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. so I guess that also leads me to wonder how much he even had time to share with with folks like Judy or or his immediate family until he drifted into something that resembled retirement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, just looking, I remember that list of uh, all the songs that he had done. It was just go on and on and on. It's it's unbelievable the amount of work, and that's not even the Beatles stuff. I mean, just on up and you know, beyond, and starting with the comedy work. It's it's just he never took a break. That's right, and remember, because he has that kind of quasi working class origin himself, like the Beatles, you wind him up, and he works. Yeah. You know, there's no rest for the weary in that world. No. Um, which explains so much of their shared output together. And how productive they were in such a short time. Right. And if it meant, you know, if it meant staying up till 3.30 a.m. to finish a song, it wasn't just them staying up into the wee hours. <laughs> you know, he was right there. Emmerich was there. Yep. Um, and at a certain level... As we all know, it's not about the money and the fame. It's just because the art is important. Exactly. Oh, there's so much, so much I could ask, and we'll have to do a, a part two at some point when maybe when the next book comes out. But I have a just a couple more uh, quickies here for you. Uh, you talk a lot about the the songs, obviously, that when we've been talking about them too. Uh, but you, you, I found it interesting. You picked a "Ticket to Ride" as a pivotal song, and uh, you discussed it in great detail. So why did you, what, what is your thinking about that song and its place in the Beatles output? Well, I mean, sonically it's different, right? Right. Maybe that's what I it mean, is. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, um, 
And it did, you know, there, there's so many stories in Ticket to Ride. First of all, thematically, um, there's a female empowerment to that song that I think is very interesting. Yeah, that's true. In itself. And there are a number of pieces like that that they're doing at that point. Um, George liked it a lot. He, he'd heard it, uh, I believe he's one of the first. I think he may have heard it first with uh, with John at the ski slopes when mm-hmm. he was Swiss Alps because George had <laughs> screwed around and hurt himself. Um, so he probably felt closer to it because he had been there um, when it when it happened from birth. Um, also, a song with some pretty fascinating guitar fills, which are played by Paul McCartney. So right. it's one of these first glimpses at mul- this multi instrumentalist. Not worrying that George Harrison should play all the guitar fills, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, of course, it's a almost a kind of proto heavy metal, uh, if you can say that. Yeah, with the um, drums and yeah, yeah sure. Um, and you also see them uh, using that uh, technique that really becomes a defining quality from '65 onwards, and that is how they would leave the tape running. And what it meant was, first of all, what it means is we do have some pretty exciting surviving material we can listen to. Uh, but it also means they would work out an idea. They may have worked out a lot of the idea before they arrived in the studio, but because that tape was was rolling, they would refine it. And, uh, and you can hear um, them working together and with George to sort of create the momentum uh, that would move move forward. Um, it's also a moment, um, when George began to take a little bit more risk with them, he felt like they were being pretty fearless with the song, you know, mm-hmm. um, how they use the fade out, um, the, with that, uh, crazy coda, right. Yeah. Um, you know, suddenly They'd always been doing this to a certain extent. But what's interesting, if you really want to think deeply about the Beatles, you folks out there, (laughs) is to think about how they use every inch of the real estate of a song. It's pretty amazing. You know, the coda is something to work with and make innovative and different and exciting. The chorus is. The guitar solo is. The introduction. There's a middle eight. Maybe there's a special bridge or a solo. Right. Uh, And this song found them really using all of those spaces and it paves the way for what they're about to do next which is a great place to stop here and i'll say uh, you end the book at the point when george martin turns 40 and that's right right before revolver uh, is where the book ends and so what what were a couple of things that uh, as you researched that surprised you the most uh, about at the end of the book here kind of give us a little bit of a preview here uh, is, uh, you chose that as a particular stopping point. So what, what really struck you about that point, that point in his life? Well, so many things. One, he's 40, but um, the fact that the book ends there tells you how much he had done prior to the Beatles. Yeah. Uh, and just the enormous amount of work that it took to get them to that place um, and how much more work is left to go, which is why I personally like the kind of song by song, almost moment by moment approach, mm-hmm. because you can feel something building. Um, and that's what I'm hoping is communicated to the reader. Yeah. Uh, but also, you know, he's 40 years old. There's a marriage in the offing. 
um, the Beatles have shown several signs that we're about to turn a corner. We don't know what it is. Um, we have Rubber Soul, which shows them jetting well beyond the last two albums mm-hmm. um, in terms of art, uh, art and artistic intent. So it's a pretty powerful place. And he had come so far uh, and he had just taken at a point in life when many people wouldn't do it an enormous risk. And, and so that's why I, I, I knew I was going here too the whole time. Uh-huh. Uh, once I realized it was, uh, going to be a two volume affair and that is he was going into business for himself. Cause he had just left EMI at that point. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's, he's sort of standing on the precipice, precipice of something else. We know in hindsight what that something else is, right? Right. But in 1966, after Rubber Soul, people weren't saying the Beatles are going to be talked about in a hundred years. And if they were, it wasn't in the same way we do it now with a certain level of confidence. There are still people, uh, who are thinking they're going to be a flash in the pan. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are words that, I'm sure were uttered to George numerous times by people trying to get beneath his skin to suggest that, you know, he's just working with here today, gone to tomorrow pop stars. And uh, really, volume two is going to be making good on who they are as artists. And so how uh, what's the schedule for volume two right now? Volume two will come out uh, on September 1st, twenty. 18 okay um it is on the same schedule uh it should be with the the publisher shortly so that we can begin doing the work we did for volume one um but uh you know we're we're at that place (laughs) that is terrific and that is it is exciting but it's uh I, i guess what i learned doing this project was um you know i I'd made certain assumptions going in and, and many of them weren't true. <laughs> uh, and, and, but that's how it is, right? It and is, you know, writing. And I think this is true for the Beatles too. So if you write enough books, you realize that every time you write a book, it is a, it has to, you have to create a process for that book. Mm-hmm. And, and it often weirdest, turns out, I, often turns out differently than you imagined it when you started. Well stated, David. Yeah. And not only that, but even in a set like this, where it's volume one and volume two, they're not even the same process. You know, so so much for resting my laurels on the process I had from before, right? Right. So forget it. <laughs> um, Throw it out. Yeah, yeah it's not going to happen. And I think that what, what I see now, having experienced this kind of day by day experience of the Beatles, is that every album they had to find the process too. It wasn't just churning out hit after hit in a consistent way, a formula at all. It was always, right, exactly. Yeah. It, the Beatles is not the same as A Hard Day's Night, which is not the same as Beatles for Sale. No, no. And, you know, it wasn't like they left Revolver and said, okay, now we're going to do this. We're just going to write about this guy and his band. No. You know? <laughs> it's not like that. No. It has to, there's an evolution that has to occur. You have to find your footing. Mm-hmm. Even if you're trying to find your footing in the same well-trodden, you know, donkey cart paths. (laughs) (laughs) Ken is an excellent speaker, as I've heard you speak a few times, and I know you do uh, lots of uh, presentations. So can you give us uh, a preview of a few places you're going to be? I know you're going to be at the Beatle uh, Convention, the Fest in Chicago in a few weeks. You bet. I'll be doing a couple of talks at the Beatles Fest next week, in fact. Yes. Um, And then... uh, 
After that, I'm doing uh, a couple of Beatles festivals. There's the London, Ontario Festival. There's the Walnut Ridge business down in Arkansas. Um, I do a number of local talks or regional talks in you know the New York area or I go pretty much anywhere. I'm going to be speaking with a symphony orchestra in Colorado. Oh, about what? Spring, uh, about George and the Beatles and composition. Nice. Um, nice. As part of their production. That's exciting. Um, mm-hmm. I recently did a similar thing with a, uh, a musical based on the Beatles in, in Pennsylvania. So, you know, I take all comers. Uh, <laughs> I'll be in Queens uh, up in New York City in a couple of months doing George's story. Um, so those are a number of the sorts of things I have going on. Good. And any other, uh, book projects besides, or any other sort of non, uh, <laughs> non Beatle related projects that you're uh, working on in addition to the George Martin stuff? Well, I'm trying to limit myself to just Beatles or my fiction. And I did just finish a novel I'm very proud of and hopefully it will find a home. Yeah, um, well, very good. yeah, it's a story for our times. Uh, so We'll see. Ooh, that sounds uh, very intriguing. A good, good place to uh, leave it. Leave us to pondering here. There you go. A yeah. little mystery. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been really so much fun, and as I said, there's so much that we can talk about, and and can, I've got a, many more questions. So we'll uh, hopefully have you back at the time of the next book, and we can get into part two. And uh, for our final song today, uh, you picked a non-George Martin production here, uh, but we're going to go out with Maybe I'm Amazed. And uh, what's your thinking on that tune? Well, we talked earlier about how the Beatles are the sum of their parts. And when they're solo, and this is true for George Martin, too, they're, you know, they're missing those parts. Um, But I find that closer to the to the originary moment of the Beatles, um, you find some, I think their most exemplary work, uh, including, you know, George Harrison's All Things Must Pass, maybe John's The Plastic Ono Band and uh, um, Imagine albums, uh, Ringo's Ringo albums, certainly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Paul, um, while he takes some time to find his footing, he's no different. And maybe I'm amazed like the song Imagine or George's All Things Must Pass or Ringo's It Don't Come Easy. Those could easily have been Beatles songs. Yeah. Quite easily. And, in fact, and some fact, of them were. They were some they, of them were, right. It's hard not to imagine that, that that would have been the place that certainly maybe I'm amazed would have gone to. Uh, it would have been a Beatles song. I think there's no doubt. But it just demonstrates that kind of, uh, again, to quote Walter Everett, there's that progressive tonality. You can hear how they're ranging. Yes. Um, you Paul McCartney almost continuing where he had been. Um, much earlier in 1969 uh, with the Get Back Project. You can see him adding a sort of spiritual element. Um, I often think of, uh, maybe I'm amazed in the same family as uh, The Long and Winding Road and Let It Be. Mm-hmm, um, like a big some, ballad. Yeah, yeah they have some kind of contemporaneousness epic. to them, but there's a, there's a texture too Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. And uh, it's just, um, it's a sort of looking into the looking glass uh, for me, that's that's where this song is. Well, very well said. And so I want to thank you once again, Ken Womack, for speaking with me. And uh, as I say, we'll do this again sometime soon. Thanks, David. It's a great pleasure. All right, thank you. And we'll be back uh, with another episode 
coming up soon. So in the meantime, uh, thanks again, and we'll go out with Maybe I'm Amazed by Paul McCartney. <laughs>